Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message of hope with this sermon titled, To Hell and Back. We're excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Good morning. Fun name for a sermon title, To Hell and Back. Uh, Hopefully I won't take you there today. Uh, Hopefully the message is not that bad. Um, I will say there's a couple of things before we get started. One, my parents are here from Tennessee. So welcome, Mom and Dad. Thank you. If, if all of you could be on your best behavior, that would be, I don't want to get grounded later. It would be really helpful. Uh, also, next week we're starting the book of Revelation as a series. And um, probably back in maybe November or December, I got this sermon on my mind, and I thought, you know, I wonder if anybody's ever unpacked this, and I thought to myself, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon like the one I'm going to give, so here's, here's, my, um, here's, here's my caveat to today. Stick with me. There's, there's a lot going on, and it's not necessarily an introduction to Revelation as much as it is an introduction to the way that the first people thought about the Bible and a way in which people thought about Scripture when they read Scripture that were first century people. And it's going to help us understand some really important things today. So as we get into the book of Revelation, uh, we are going to be able to uh, understand it, I think, a little bit more deeply because of today. So you, you chose a great day to come. Many of you will have questions after this sermon. That's okay. Shoot me an email, dave at recsac.org. I'd be glad to answer those. And we're going to do a podcast follow-up to this sermon. If you've got any questions, we'll do a podcast on that too, because it is something that's probably not talked about in church all that often. So with all that, let's get into it. I want to start with this question. Let's think about our world. Do we live in an only natural world or is there something of supernature in our world? Do we live in an only natural world, or is there something supernatural about it? Think about our world for a second. Now, at church, every week, we come and we sing songs and we proclaim and we read scripture that Jesus was like the Son of God, came from heaven, took on human flesh, died, overcame death, and walked again, and lived again, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. That is pretty supernatural, right? Ruth, we got trees flashing. I have no idea why, but it's bugging me. Just unplug them. We'll just get into it. We'll just, you know what? I can help out too. I, I might, thank you. Yes, I can unplug lights. I'm really good at that. That's about the only qualifications I have. If I ever am not a pastor, I have no other useful skills, so unplugging lights is, is supernatural. Thank you. Okay. Is there something? Where was I? Where, yeah, supernatural. But here's the deal. We live in a culture in America and just in our predominant culture that wants to say everything is just material and natural in our world. There's nothing of supernature. It's all just regular nature. And that's what our world wants you to see. And, and, and there's even people who say, you know what? Evil actually doesn't even exist. Like Satan doesn't exist and his minions or whatever. It doesn't, it's just all a bunch of hocus pocus and fun things to do a Halloween. And, and it's just not really real, you know? And even if you were to read the statement, 
that this group of people that call themselves the Satanic Temple say, they even say that Satan doesn't exist, which is really fun. Let me read this statement to you. The Satanic Temple is a non-theistic religious organization founded in 2013. It uses satanic imagery, humor, and legal tactics to advocate for the separation of church and state, critical thinking, reproductive rights, abolishing corporal punishment in schools, and other causes. It does not believe in a supernatural Satan, but uses the idea of Satan and the public reaction to the concept as a metaphor, uh, metaphorical or satirical tool to challenge religious authority and to advocate what it views as injustice. So even this group is saying, Satan's not real. This is just a bunch of hocus-pocus. Everything's just natural. Well, I don't think they really believe that. Jesus, after speaking to the Pharisees and telling them that the truth will set them free, gets a lot of pushback from the Pharisees. And here's what he says. And if you believe in Jesus, we have to believe what Jesus says about Satan. And he says this, John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil... And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, the father of lies. So do you think the satanic temple is telling you the truth? (laughs) That's my point. No, it's not. Jesus was very aware of Satan. And I know, you know what? I can't tell you how many times I've been in church and heard sermons on this. So let me, let me just get into this. And also because I don't think I've preached on this enough. So let, let me just get into this. It wasn't a shock to Jesus that evil was all around him. Jesus had a supernatural worldview. He wasn't secular. Obviously, Jesus had a supernatural worldview. He understood that supernatural things happen. Being in himself, both human and God, he knows that the supernature exists. Jesus absolutely knows that. But in our world today, evil is all around us. It is. And it just likes to pretend like it doesn't exist. My favorite place, it's so easy. I, I mean, I, I, this is such low-hanging fruit uh, that I, I almost am embarrassed to show you. But Hollywood know, knows this. And Hollywood has fun with this. So um, a number of years ago, there's a TV show called Lucifer. We got pictures of these shows. And, and the idea is like, hey, Lucifer is kind of a misunderstood guy. You know, there's this TV show. It's kind of misunderstood. Um, last year, the singer Sam Smith did basically a satanic ritual on the stage of the Grammys. And when he tweeted about it, CBS replied with a tweet that said this. We're ready to worship. I mean, do you think this is just benign stuff? They had to delete that tweet. It got deleted. But my point here is not to point at Hollywood and point at be like, oh, look at all these evil people or whatever. My point is to show you that it is real, but they just like to pretend like it's not. What's interesting is that a couple weeks after this performance, last year, this was just last year, one of the most prolific revivals in America broke out at Asbury University. Isn't that interesting? My point is that spiritual warfare has a reality to it, and it is real. Right now, um, I've got one last example here. Right now, there's a new Amazon Prime show that's supposed to, it's a cartoon for adults. It's called Has Been, or Has Been Hotel. It's a show about how the devil was just misunderstood and how he really just tried to bring free will to the world and all, and, and Satan really is the good guy, and God is the bad guy. 
Like, this is a real show. You could just go on Amazon Prime and watch it. I don't recommend it, but you could. My point is that this is all around us in our world. And then they also, the people who make this stuff and the people who talk about this also like to go, oh, but it's just a big joke. It's not really real. It's just a big joke. We live in a natural world. There's nothing supernatural about it. Then why are you doing a satanic ritual? Like, I don't get it, if that's the truth. Here's my point, and this is the first fill-in today. And I can go on and on with examples like this. But there is a spiritual battle happening in our world for your allegiance. There's a spiritual battle happening for my allegiance. There just is in the world. And I want to break down that for you biblically. Because I've always heard pastors talk about this, but I've never heard them tell the origin story of evil. And that's what I want to talk about today, because as we get into that, one of the things that you'll see all the way through the book of Revelation is that there's this massive battle happening between good and evil all the way through. As God unveils his plan in the world, evil keeps pushing in and pushing in and pushing in. The world starts getting chaotic and crazy and things like this. So there is this spiritual battle. It's not just this funny joke. And this is going to, I think, prepare us for the book of Revelation. So here's the first place I want to start today. In the ancient world, I mean, today we talk about things like Greek mythology, right? There's Zeus, there's Poseidon, there's Aphrodite, there's all these different Greek gods and things like that. In our world today, 21st century America, we talk about this as mythology, as not really being real. Did first century Greek people believe that it was really real? Yes. Were they mass delusion people? Were they all just like taking drugs and stuff like that and be like, oh no, we're all, just, we're all, we're all seeing things, we're on shrooms? No, it is that they actually believed that this was real. The, the Bible assumes that these other gods actually existed. Now, do not hear me wrong. This does not challenge the superiority, the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It does not challenge any of that. But I want to help give you this origin story in it. Because I want to show you that around the world, even, even if you look right now, you look around the world at um, at societies that were separated by large bodies of water, why do they all have a creation myth that somehow involves a serpentine character? I mean, you might not know that, but if you look at ancient world history and you've got all these landlocked nations all around the world, they all have this creation myth that somehow it's from a snake, a dragon, the belly of a, you know, like it's, it's just prolific all the way around the world. You find the same, same symbology everywhere. Why? And it's either that, you know, the History Channel's right and ancient aliens are real, which, by the way, I think it's a crock. And we'll t- I, I could talk about that later on the podcast, why that's so wrong. But, or there's actual evil at play in our world. Okay. Now you have 10,000 questions. So let me start with this verse. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. You might notice this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Here's what God says in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And I've underlined a couple things here that I want you to see are important. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Notice in this verse, there's three ways to see the word God. I am the Lord. Whenever you see in the, the book of, um, whenever you see in the Old Testament, the word Lord, all capitalized, that is the, the personal name of God. It is Yahweh. So if you were to just translate that specifically, it's Yahweh. Your God, that's the word Elohim. Whenever it's a singular use, it's talking usually about uh, Yahweh. The word Elohim could either be singular or plural. I'm going to try not to go too deep here, okay? I'm sorry. There is a little bit of depth that needs to go into this. And you shall have no other gods, plural, before me. So there's three ways that the word God is spoken of. Yahweh, uh, the personal name of God, and he's saying, yes, I am your God. And you shall have no other gods before me. Now, in our 21st century viewing of this text, we go, yes, don't make my car an idol. Yes, don't make money an idol. Yes, we can't make any of these other little things a god. But that's not what the word means. In fact, the second commandment is don't make any idols. So if he already covered that in the second commandment, who is he talking about in the first commandment? In the first commandment, that word Elohim means spiritual being. That's all it means. So, in which it translates to God. But it also means spiritual being. It's used all over the Bible as spiritual beings. And so what God is literally saying to his people, look, you just came out of Egypt in this land filled with these spiritual beings. Don't have any of those before me. I am in the millennial usage. I'm the top G right? That was for you, Emma. That's what God is saying. I I am the top dog. I am the one who created all of this. And so the beginning of the Ten Commandments, it's sort of hidden in plain sight. It just shows you that God is like, listen, I'm I'm the top dog here. You're not to have any other gods before me. And a lot of times, just in our 21st, we can't divorce ourselves from being 21st century Americans. How do we really view the Bible the way that the first people viewed it, the the way that they would have viewed it when they got the Ten Commandments? So right in the beginning is this acknowledgement, and we kind of have to take off our 21st century glasses and put on Bronze Age glasses in order to see what's really going on here. And again, like I said, we immediately translate this in a way in our, because one of the things we went through, all of us, is called enlightenment. And as all of us went through enlightenment, we got to rationalism. And so we, we started to like rationalize things. So we, so we read things in enlight, through enlightenment glasses and in rationalism glasses. And the Bronze Age, first century people read things through supernatural glasses. That's how they read things. That's how they understood things. So even like we did an Exodus series here um, this last year. And, and I never mentioned this during the Exodus series, but as we approached the burning bush, I read a scholar that said this, well, there's this site in Sinai that's a formal volcanic site. And so this might be the location of the burning bush because there's all this burned rock from this volcanic site. Do you see what this scholar is doing wrong to anybody? What the scholar is doing wrong is assuming that the supernatural can't exist finding a natural explanation for the supernatural. 
That's what the scholar is doing wrong. And we, we do this all the time. Scholars make this mistake all the time. We take what is supposed to be supernatural in the Bible and we try and find a rationalistic uh, 21st century enlightened explanation for it. And we're kind of breaking the Bible when we do that. We are. We're not faithfully reading the scriptures the way that they were meant to be read at that time. And as if Moses is so dumb that he can't tell the difference between a burning bush and a volcano. I mean, that's what the scholar is saying. I mean, if you think about that for a second, like you've seen volcanoes on TV, I think you would understand a tree that was on fire versus a volcano. Most people would. Because we try, even in our 21st century minds, to say the supernatural isn't really real. That's what we're doing way down deep inside because we're products of enlightenment and rationalism. Are you guys with me? Okay, good, good. And I'm like, don't go too deep down the rabbit hole. I keep telling myself that. Don't go too deep down the rabbit hole because this is a massive rabbit hole and I don't want to go too deep down it. So let me ask you this. This is a question that will help you set the stage in your mind for reading the Bible. And I think one of the most important questions of the 21st century, and it's on your notes, is reality secular? Now, this is one that you can't think about right now or else you're going to break your brain. you got to go home and think about this. Is your reality secular? <laughs> some, for some people, yes. Yeah, because that's just the way the world is. Everything's secular. Everything is like, pull God out of this and out of that. But the reality is, do you believe in a God who came to earth and died for you and then took his life back up again. Well, that's not secular. Do you pray to Jesus? That's, that's not a secular thing to do. Do you come to church and worship God? That's not a secular thing to do at all. Do you believe that God moves in your life? Do you believe that he's got all authority and power? That is not secular at all. So is reality, the way we really view the world, is true reality that everyone's experiencing, is it secular? It's an important question to ask because I think that if you were to answer that question very honestly, you'd have to say no. And if reality is not secular, then what is it? There's something of supernature in reality because God does move. Okay, thank you for going down this rabbit hole with me. Now we have to ask the questions, when the question, the, this question. In the Ten Commandments, when God says, don't have any other gods before me, who on earth is he talking about? Has anybody thought about that question? It's like, what on earth is he talking about? Why, why would other people, who are these other gods? Okay, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. I've mentioned this verse a few times uh, from stage, but it's one of these verses that I'll tell you this. You've probably read, you've probably read the Bible before, and you've read through odd and weird things. And sometimes when you get to an odd and weird thing, there's this really quick computation that happens in your brain. And this quick computation says, that's odd and peripheral. In fact, it's too peripheral to matter. Let's just keep reading. And you go beyond it and you go, ah, okay, Noah's Ark. I know this story. Don't worry. We're good. We're back on track now. You know, and it's like, we're just going to leave that little four verse thing alone because it's probably too peripheral to matter. But the reality is, what I hope to show you today is that from Genesis to Revelation, 
there's spiritual warfare happening, and it starts in Genesis 6. And Jesus has something really important to say about it, and it traverses its way through the entire book of Revelation 2. So Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord, Yahweh, by the way, said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Quick note on that. Most scholars believe that that means there was 120 years between this point and the flood. Not that people are only going to live to be 120 years old, just so you know. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, and these were mighty men, who were of old, the men of renown. Whew. Weird verse, right? Like, it's just weird. And, and, and again, I know that this is an obscure text, but what this verse is trying to say, and I'm going to try and give you the, we're going down a huge rabbit hole anyways, but I'm going to try and give you the Twitter version of this so we could keep going down this rabbit hole. Essentially what this is, is that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you have the story of humankind God creating a good earth, and then humankind rebelling against God in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 6, there's this mere story of God has a divine counsel. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. And some of those that God had created, other Elohims that God had created, other spiritual beings, rebelled against God. And what they did is they came to earth, and just as in Genesis 1, God made humans in his own image... These rebellious spiritual beings came down and tried to make another brand of humanity in their own image. That's what the Nephilim thing is all about. It's this ultimate rebellion against God that, oh, you want to be creator, we want to be creators. And because God allows free will, this happens. This is Genesis chapter 6. I didn't make it up. I didn't write the Bible. That's what happens here. Sorry, it gets weird. <laughs> it just does. So there's this group that, divine, that rebels against God. This is an origin story of spiritual warfare. This is a really, really, really important when it comes to the New Testament and ultimately the book of Revelation because this is the beginnings of the battle between good and evil. So one of the things that we fail to notice is that while this story may seem odd to us, it was normal to the ancients. So normal, in fact, that they had entire other books written about this story. They had the book of the giants, the book of Jubilees. They had the books of Enoch written about this story. And this is something that Jewish commentators talked about a lot in a period called the Second Temple Period. This was just normal conversation. Now, we have to remember, we are the strange ones in this conversation because we're 21st century Americans. We've been through enlightenment. We have rationalism. We have all these other things. But if you were alive in the first century, if you were alive when Jesus was around, these are books that you would have had on your shelf. These are things that you would have read. These are stories that you would have passed down. This was just normal part of the conversation. Just as much as like when somebody like over here talks about Star Wars, you could keep the conversation going over here because it's just part of our cultural knowledge. That's just the idea. This was a story that might be odd to us, but wasn't at all odd to ancient people. 
because they live in a supernatural worldview. People on earth understood that there's always something happening in the unseen realm, something that they couldn't necessarily see. Okay, so God says, don't have any other gods before me. Who are those gods? Well, hey, they're the rebellious ones talked about in Genesis chapter 6. And then ultimately, the Psalms even talk about this. I'm going to just show you an obscure Psalm. We're going to read all of it. Psalm 82, it's pretty obscure. God has taken, this is Psalm 2, verses uh, 82, verse 1 in the whole Psalm. God has taken his place in the divine council. What? First, the first thing we see here is that God has a council of other divines. Now, some people want to say this threatens the Trinity. It threatens, not at all. Not even remotely does it threaten the Trinity. It shows God is the most high God. It shows what it means that God is most high and above all others because he has ultimate authority. Okay. In the midst of the gods and the other Elohims, he holds judgment. And then he says this, How long will you judge unjustly? Show partiality for the wicked. Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights, uh, the right of the affected and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high God, all of you. Nevertheless, like men shall you die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So here's the idea here. Where do the, what are all these other gods doing in our world, right? And this is, again, I'm giving you the supernatural worldview of the Bible. If you're just tuning in, you're like, what on earth is this guy talking about? What all these other gods are supposedly doing in the world is they are having their share of authority over the nations. This is something found in Exodus 32. We'll talk about this in the podcast. So it, it goes deep. I'm telling you, this is a deep rabbit hole. I've got about 30 minutes in a sermon. And God is judging them for their rebellion that was found in Genesis chapter 6. That's what Psalm 82 does. Judging these other Elohim for their rebellion and leading people astray through evil. This is what God is doing. And I know even the idea of like, oh man, God has a divine counsel. This is so weird and foreign to us, but it gets less weird when you realize we just went through Christmas and Luke chapter 2 verse 13 and 14 says, and suddenly there was an angel with a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. I mean, it's right there in the Bible, but we, we tend to like de-supernaturalize it in our enlightenment 21st century brains because our training, like I said, works against us when we read the Bible and we have to understand that. So a multitude of heavenly hosts, well, who's that? That's the divine counsel, the beings that are loyal to Yahweh, God's agents, in heaven, in the unseen realm, that are loyal to God. So in Psalm 82, God calls all the Elohim together and judge them for their corruption and their corrupt rule over the nations. So I'm telling you all this because this story is going to end up clashing. It's all moving towards an element. And what I want you to see is that spiritual warfare is not something that just pops up in the New Testament, but this is something that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation in biblical theology. It's something that is there. And it's going to get weirder, so just hold on to your seats here. So as we begin to go into the New Testament, 
you have to start to ask the question, you know, as I'm reading the Bible, I don't know if any of you have done this. You read the Bible, you go through the Old Testament, and you go to the New Testament, and Jesus all of a sudden is on the scene. And all of a sudden, everywhere Jesus goes, he's being stopped by demon-possessed people, right? And he's being, you know, they're trying to stop him in his plan. He's being stopped by these demon-possessed people. And you're like reading the Bible, and you're like, wait a second. The word demon is in the Old Testament three times. Just so you know, you probably didn't know that. I know that, but that's because I looked it up. Okay. Why is it that it's in the Old Testament three times and then the New Testament like a trillion times and everywhere that Jesus goes, he's being opposed by evil? Again, your 21st century mind wants you to go, oh, this is all fake, this is all fake, this is all fake. But the first century people would have understood this. Remember I told you there's these books that are being talked about at the time of Jesus? The book of Jubilees, the book of Giants, the book of Enoch. The, uh, there's all these other books that are being talked about. Well, they're written, in those books are written these origin stories. And all of a sudden in Jesus' ministry, there's this flourish of spiritual warfare happening. In the Old Testament, Psalm 82, it says, hey, these people are going to be judged. And they're awaiting this day of judgment. And, and it's not only just awaiting sinful, judgment of the sinful humanity, but judgment of this evil, this evil that keeps perpetuating from evil itself, from Satan. That's what the, this judgment is waiting for. So there's all these second temple resources, all this stuff like I told you about, uh, rabbinic commentary. Um, and, I, and I'm going to read you quickly from the book of Enoch, but I want to tell you this first. The book of Enoch is not scripture. It's not. It's not in the Bible. And the only reason why I use it is to help you understand what a first century person would have had in their head. But it's not the Bible. It's interesting to read. It's fun to read. I just start, like, actually read the whole thing this last year for myself for the first time and was shocked and going, why hadn't I read this before? It's really, really interesting. It's not the Bible. Capiche? Thank you. A true Italian replies, capiche, back. Okay. It says this, And now the giants who reproduce from the spirits of the flesh shall be called evil spirits among the earth. And the spirits of the giants affect, oppress, destroy, act to do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst, and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against women because they have proceeded from them. And all the way through the book of Enoch, by the way, the righteous one is supposed to be coming. So the first century person, when they look at all these demons that are opposing Jesus, they're thinking, oh, this all goes back to Genesis chapter 6. It all goes back to the story, the fall. The, the disembodied spirits of these, these dead people are, are now affecting people that are, that are around me. They're now going after Jesus. They want to stop Jesus' plan because Jesus' plan is ultimately to build this kingdom that destroys all evil. And they know that if Jesus succeeds, it means that they are just in punishment forever. And so it's more spiritual warfare coming and coming and coming because they know that they were the beginning, the rebellious ones. So again, I told you it gets weird because we're 21st century people and we've got to go into the Bronze Age and say, what does this mean? Okay. Whew. All right. Still have a little bit to go here. Are, are you guys still with me? Are any of you just like, I'm leaving this church. This is the weirdest thing in the world. <laughs> we need like a laughing break here. It's, again, 
it seems weird because it's camouflaged within the text. And it seems obscure. And so we kind of go, ah, oh, it's too peripheral to matter. We're going to push it to the side and keep on going. But it actually is deeply, deeply important. There's a kingdom of dark, darkness that wants to stop Jesus and his mission, and you are his mission. If you are on mission with Jesus, if every day you wake up and say, okay, Jesus, let's go, we're on mission together, there's a kingdom of darkness that wants to stop that because it knows that it loses the battle ultimately and it wants to hang on as long as possible. But you have nothing to fear because Jesus actually conquered that kingdom. And we're going to talk about how crazy it is that Jesus conquered that kingdom and how uh, almost invisible it is to us. So just a quick recap before we get in this next section. God has a divine council of other spiritual beings. So for some of you, that was like, already. Okay. A portion of this divine council rebels against God. They come to earth and create their own race made in their own image. And a whole bunch of evil spirits out of that are now on the loose because of this. Yay! And there's very little taught on this doctrine altogether. <laughs> Except for, I guess, today. And we have this theology that Jesus is victorious because of the cross, but it's actually more than that. So I'm going to go to the Apostles' Creed so we could talk about something that is almost, I've never heard a sermon on this in church before, so we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed. This is a creed that's been alive in the church since the year 300, okay? It says this, and you've probably all said it before, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died, and was buried. He descended into hell. What? Did anybody catch that? <laughs> he descended into where? To hell. What? Okay, let's keep reading. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, when the church was really young in an infancy and didn't have a Bible, it had these creeds. Why? Because it had to teach the church good theology because you didn't have one of these. They weren't available to you. And so they had these memorizable creeds that you learned. And in there, there's this little like, that seems a little too peripheral to matter. Jesus went to hell, that seems weird, it seems odd, and then you just move on, right? Turns out in the area of the spiritual battle that we're talking about today, and even in the book of Revelation, this matters so much. So let's look at what Jesus says first. Matthew 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, so we kind of get there that Jesus is going to die. But if you were a first century person and you heard the phrase, the heart of the earth, let me tell you what you would hear. In a first century Jew would have believed that dead people get buried underground and they called that Sheol, the place of the dead. The only place that wasn't created in Eden because it was created after Eden because there wasn't death in Eden. And so this was a bad place, a place of waiting and just a, the, the Sheol, the death, the, the, in the ground. That's what they would have believed. And so Jesus says, I'm going there too, to the Sheol. And they're like, wait a second. You're the Messiah. You shouldn't go to the Sheol. Like, this doesn't make, it does not compute, does not make sense, Jesus. So Jesus says this. And then Ephesians chapter 4. And by the way, there's many more verses on this. I, we just didn't have time, so I'm going to choose three. 
the Apostle Paul says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he also le- or he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he says this in parentheses. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also, um, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might uh, fill all things. So Paul is like talking about the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. And he's like, oh, but don't forget, one of the most important parts is that he also descended into hell. What? <laughs> right? Okay. Now, First Peter, and this one just trips people out. In fact, I was reading um, a commentary, and it says Martin Luther wrote on this section, I have to be honest, I'm perplexed by this. I'm not going to offer a comment. This is not, I mean, Martin Luther is a brilliant man. This is not just Martin Luther, but many, many scholars have gone together, and, and let me tell you about this. Anyways, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience uh, waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptisms, which, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Though through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so Peter does this really weird thing where he talks about Christ saving us, Jesus descending to the prison and proclaiming to the prisoners, and then he talks about baptism as if this all makes sense to everybody, right? And we're going to talk about why this all totally makes sense. Many people just skip over this passage. Again, it's too weird. But I hope you see that this is so key today. It makes no sense contextually for Peter to be teaching that the wicked would get a second chance. And that's what Jesus is doing. Many people believe, oh, that Jesus goes to hell to to just preach to the wicked people to get a second chance. And almost nobody in the scholarly community today who understands what the first century person believed, believes that. In fact, here's some of the, one of the commentators, um, doc, Dr. Richard um, Schreiner, says, the majority view among scholars today is that the text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels, or the evil Elohim. These evil angels, according to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, had sexual relations with women and were imprisoned because of their sin. The point of the passage, then, is not that Christ descended into hell, but as in 322, his victory over all angelic, evil angelic powers. So here's my point that I said, like I said at the beginning of the message. Sometimes we matter that things are just too odd and peripheral to matter. But in the whole Bible, there's a storyline of how humanity rebelled in the garden and was redeemed on the cross. There's another storyline that runs parallel with that storyline. And that storyline is that in part of God's counsel, divine counsel rebelled. 
and that divine council rebelling against God, they ran amok on the earth, and they tried to defeat Jesus. They, they thought that they did by defeating him on the cross, but really, instead of, Jesus pulls the ultimate switcheroo on him and goes down to the prison and says, guess what? I'm actually winning. I'm actually getting out of this place. I'm coming down here to proclaim to you that you're done. You're finished because I conquered you on the cross and I'm about to take my life back up again. That's what Jesus is doing there. You might be wondering why this Peter talks about baptism in all of this, right? Because the baptism symbology is that you die in the waters and you defeat darkness and evil in your own life. And when you raise again, you are a new creation. Just as Jesus descended into hell and said, guess what? I got victory over the darkness. You have no power left in this world. In fact, I'm taking the keys to this place. And he leaves. In your baptism, that's the exact same thing that happens. This is what Peter, the, the apostle of Jesus, like the, the right-hand man of Jesus is like, yeah, don't you know that that's what baptism's all about? And how many of you were like, I didn't know that's what baptism was all about. It's about defeating the evil and darkness in your life and walking to new life. That's what baptism is about. Jesus dies on Good Friday. He descends into hell and goes to the rebellious spirits who've never heard about Jesus or whatever. Not just people who've never heard about Jesus, but the rebellious Elohim of God's divine counsel and says, guess what? You're not going to get away with it. Your next fill-in and your last fill-in, and we're going to wrap this up soon is that Jesus proclaimed victory over evil because they are staying in hell and he's going to take his life back up again. That's what he's doing there. You're not getting up out of here, but I am. Because I'm going to take my life back. And this all correlates. And I'll tell you this, this sermon originated because I was studying Revelation chapter 1. <laughs> and I was like, what does this verse mean? It all correlates with something that Jesus says about himself in Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to look at next week. But I knew, knew I couldn't go into this amount of time on Revelation chapter 1, just on one verse, verse 18. It says this, and I am the living one. This is Jesus speaking. I died, and behold, I'm alive, and forevermore I have the keys of death and Hades. Why does he have the keys? Because he went there and took them. He went there and took them. And why? Because he has victory over the darkness. He's got victory over evil. He's got all power over evil. Evil wants you to believe that it just doesn't even exist, that it's just some hocus pocus, oh, we just fun TV shows, it's just all of this. Because if evil doesn't really exist, then Jesus doesn't need to have any part in it. But evil does exist. The entire Bible talks about it, and it doesn't talk about it to give it glory. It talks about it to show that Jesus has power and authority over it. Notice that when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, stands with his disciples, the words he says, the, the first words he says to them in the Great Commission is, all authority has been given to me. Why? Because he just conquered evil. He went down there to hell and said, you're not going to have power anymore. You got no more jurisdiction." I got the keys. And when we decide to follow Jesus, when we decide to give our lives over to Jesus, we have to understand that this is a supernatural act that we're doing. And we have to open our lives up and say, Jesus, is there anything in me 
Have I given evil a foothold in my life? Is there anything in me where I've given evil, myself over to evil? Am I still doing this in my own life? Am, am I giving myself over to any of this? See, we don't follow a weak and ineffectual God, but one who came and overcame death, the one who came and took the keys from Satan, the one who, who has all power and all authority. This is not hocus pocus, but it's really, really real. The one who squashed all rebellion. Jesus has real power in our lives. And the problem, though, living in a world that's so secular, is that we fall into that trap too. And we just become secular with it by default because we're formed and shaped by our world. And I think we need to be more formed and shaped by the scriptures than we are by our world. And so we have to ask the question, where is it that we, we've just said in our life, oh, evil is just hocus pocus. It's just, it's just, it's just uh, you know, old wives tale. It's a fairy tale. It's, it's all this stuff. It, where is it that you're giving evil a foothold in your life? Maybe you're quick to anger. Maybe you're struggling with hating people. Maybe you struggle with talking poorly about others. Maybe you struggle with lust and pornography. Maybe you, you just struggle with having any love in you at all. Like Maybe you just struggle with, with things. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you're a prisoner and you just got some chains on. Jesus has the keys. That's the point. He's got the keys. That's the point of him going to hell and defeating evil. He's got the keys because evil is real. And Jesus has so much more power than that. So here's the good news. That if you're following Jesus, you're following the one whom holds all authority. He's got the keys. You're on the right side. Now, I always talk about this. Now, many people say when you become a Christian, you have a target on your back. I, I think that that's sort of true. Here's what I think what happens. The will of God is the target of the enemy. And when you begin to follow Jesus, there's this, you know, line of sight target right there. And you begin to walk straight into the line of fire when you begin to follow Jesus. So yeah, you kind of have a target on your back, but you're kind of walking into a firing range. He's got all authority. He's got all power. He's got the keys. And he wants to share that with you. Isn't that what the Great Commission says? All authority has been given to me. Now go. I'm giving to you. He wants to share his life with you. He wants to build a kingdom of his goodness on this earth that overcomes and defeats evil. This is this giant divine conspiracy that we're talking about. This is God's plan on earth is that the, the earth is eager for more people that look like Jesus to continue to overcome evil in your world. So maybe you're here today and I want to invite Jeff and the band to come up. We're, as we play this next song, Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with just some change in your life, whatever they are. You're struggling with, with evil having some sort of foothold in your life. You're struggling that maybe you've given yourself over to some of this. Jesus wants to break those chains. Again, he's got the keys. He's the only one that can. He's the only one that has all this power. So when God says, I am Yahweh, the main Gee, Emma. And when I am Yahweh, I am God. Do not have any other gods before me. That's who he's talking about. Let's give ourselves over this morning to worshiping the one who's got the keys to hell.
the one who overcame evil with his life, the one who wants to share his life with you. Maybe you're here today and, and you're just like, you know what, I've been kind of sitting on the fence. I want to encourage you, the book of Revelation, we're going to get there too, encourage you to get off the fence. You can't live on the fence. It's painful on the fence. Don't keep sitting on the fence. Bad stuff happens on the fence. I want to encourage you. we got these yellow cards in the back seat, and it talks about your decision. Maybe your decision here today is to say, I need to begin to follow Jesus because he's got the keys. i got to follow him. Maybe your decision is to rededicate your life to him. If that's you today, I want to encourage you to fill that card out and put it in one of the offering boxes because a pastor wants to follow up with you. But maybe you're here today and you simply are like, yeah, I've got footholds of evil in my life and you just want to come and pray or sit or pray where you're at. Maybe you just want to worship and I just want to encourage you to ask the Lord to break those chains. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Forgive us of not having eyes to see all this stuff because it is deep and thick stuff and it's hard to see unless somebody pulls it out and shows us. But God, expose the evil that we have in our lives. God, if we're giving ourselves over to evil at all, I pray that you would expose that and that you would break the power of evil in our lives. God, break any grip that Satan has in our lives. Break any grip of power that evil might have in our lives as leading us astray. And God, help us to fully devote ourselves to you and find freedom in the one who's got the keys to death and the entire enterprise of evil. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of RAC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.